The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Birnbaum, a climate reporter at The Post and a former Berlin bureau chief. Today, we're taking a look at uh, European climate policy. Our guest today is Jennifer Morgan, Germany's special envoy for climate. Jennifer, hello. Hello. Um, just to start, um, uh, how, are you cold right now in, in, in your office? I know that Germany is limiting heat in government offices. How does it feel in Berlin? It's very cold in Berlin right now. And indeed, our offices are set at 19 degrees Celsius, so it's a bit chilly, but I've got a sweater. And uh, in comparison to what's happening in the Ukraine right now, I think we're doing very well. So 19 degrees Celsius for our American audience, that's about 66 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which here in Washington, typically we only allow that with air conditioning in the summertime, not in the winter. Um, but so before you were Germany's climate envoy, you ran Greenpeace International for uh, for six years. Why did you make the switch from activism and advocacy to governing? Well, I I had the opportunity when uh, Minister Baerbock, uh, the foreign minister, gave me a call to ask if I would be interested in serving, and I made the switch because I read the coalition agreement for this government, and it had the goals that I have stood for and worked for for many years. The 1.5 degrees goal, ambitious national climate policies, phasing out of coal, a greenhouse gas neutrality goal by 2045, and also uh, a foreign policy that was really values-based and where climate um, and even climate justice was in the center. And I thought, okay, um, I always have tried in my life to go where I thought I could make change. And uh, this was an amazing honor and opportunity that I thought, you know, I should give a go. And we always say in the NGO movement that one should move beyond one's comfort zone at this moment of crisis. And uh, that's um, that's what I did. And I'm really glad that I did. Um, that's a lot of ground to cover. I'm looking forward to talking about a lot of those issues with you today. Um, but, uh, you know, just to, to begin, I covered uh, the Glasgow uh, talks, uh, the UN climate talks in Glasgow last year. I saw you leading protests there. This year, you were leading Germany's negotiations at, uh, at you know, the, the latest installment of those UN climate talks in Egypt. What do you wish 2021 Jennifer Morgan had known about uh, actually being in government and being in a position of responsibility in these climate negotiations? I mean, I guess one thing is just um, how challenging it is um, to uh, have a responsibility to make decisions, to have to balance out the different, you know, priorities of different countries. Um, certainly in the loss and damage negotiations, that was certainly a key uh, piece. And, you know, I guess oh, I always had respect uh, for negotiators and 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 you know people ministers who were there, but I don't think I understood the the extra responsibility that's on the shoulders of people who are trying to come to decisions and to uh, agreements, and that's a, an additional level I think that I now appreciate more. 
And you, you took your current position just weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine, um, sparking an energy crisis and, and a clear humanitarian crisis. How has the war in Ukraine affected your, your mission now? Well, I think um, the horrific war, Russian war of aggression, you know, certainly it has impacted it. I think it's done so in different ways. I think it's made um, the urgency of phasing out fossil fuels and going for renewable energy, which is now uh, been termed freedom energy in Germany uh, as, as a top, top priority. Um, and I think accelerated the pace at which we've been passing legislation, setting new ambitious goals to scale that up in Germany and in Europe. Uh, I think it's also really put an extra emphasis on our work uh, with developing countries um, after, you know, when we see what this Russian war is doing in terms of the pressure on food security and on energy security, uh, and after COVID, um, I think the sense of solidarity that I feel that we feel is even greater. Uh, and those two things I think have been common themes. That means we're really looking for those new alliances, uh, putting a even bigger focus on making sure that we maintain um, internationally uh, binding rules, um, an international set of, of rules that all countries should be following. Uh, th that's obviously a key a key priority for, for me and for us. So with the war in Ukraine, there's a short-term crisis and, and there's long-term work. What, what do you think are going to be the lasting consequences of the war for Europe's climate policy? Well, I think due to the Russian war, I think Europe is moving faster. I mean, I think the geopolitics of energy are shifting. Uh, dramatically, I think, uh, for Europe and, and therefore, you know, as we we will peak, I'm pretty sure we will peak gas earlier. Uh, we're, you know, having by the end of the year, we will have phased out our, our Russian imports. 55% of our gas imports came from Russia. And I think now, uh, you know, looking at how we within Europe, first of all, meet our energy needs, and then also looking uh, and accelerating the pace of new uh, energy and, and climate partnerships uh, around the world. I think that is a, is a very big shift. I also think that we've learned the hard way uh, that being dependent on one nation for so much of uh, something that brings, uh, you know, services and stability to our citizens is a mistake that we shouldn't make again. And I think, um, you know, Europe uh, also is holding together on that. I, I think lastly, in a way, the Russian war has brought Europe closer together in how we're working, have been working together. Also, the G7, I think, in a way, has had a revitalization. I'm sure that was not uh, Putin's plan, but um, certainly standing closely together uh, to forge a way forward that has climate protection, energy, security, and peace uh, more centrally uh, there as key goals. Um, and you were, of course, at those recent UN climate talks in Egypt. You helped engineer that deal, last minute deal, some damage, a, a kind of climate reparations. Um, it really the kind of the first time, first action on that at, at one of these gatherings. Um, take us a little bit behind the the the, the scenes at at the at the um, at the negotiations. What 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 was it like? 
Well, it was it was intense because the first thing that we uh, the Egyptian presidency asked myself and Maisa Rojas, the environment minister from Chile, if we would be co-facilitators for those loss and damage negotiations. They asked us that at the pre-COP, uh, which was a few weeks, three, four weeks before the COP, because the first thing that we had to do was actually see if we could uh, get that issue on the agenda in a way that was acceptable to all parties, which was a huge uh, disagreement at the bond talks uh, in, in June. And so what we did was we started, we listened. I just have to say we listened a huge amount in the lead up to the COP uh, in order to put forward something for the presidency that, that could then get the issue even on the agenda, which was very clear, by the way, that um, it's not about liability. It's not about reparations for the past. It's about looking forward, but it is about addressing loss and damage. Um, and then you know, as we arrived uh, the first week, actually, the negotiations were undertaken by uh, Minister Rojas and my team. Uh, and then when she arrived, I mean, we had a series of bilaterals with all major groups. So if you can imagine, you know, uh, the UN has various groups. When we met with the G77 in China, that's all the developing countries. Pakistan was the chair. So we would meet and listen to a group of, oh, it was like 45 people. And then we would sit and we would meet with the European Union separately. And then we would meet and listen to what's called the umbrella group, which is a group that has the United States and Canada and Japan. And uh, then we would meet with, um, um, yeah, the, the Arab group or the others. So we really did a lot of listening. And then based on that, we worked with the, the secretariat, the climate secretariat supported us to put together a draft text and then we consulted further. So it was a lot of listening, synthesizing, trying to really understand the priorities of each of each of those key blocks so that we could put forward something to the Egyptian presidency that that could actually uh, come to a decision. And, and that was indeed touch and go um, until I would say final hours. And there, I have to say, I think the European Union played a very important role in getting a breakthrough. One area that didn't make as much headway was efforts to accelerate cuts to uh, global greenhouse gas emissions. The U.S. got some of the blame for that. Um, is that fair? And um, why wasn't there more uh, progress on, on emissions? Indeed, we've, we've stated very clearly that this outcome was far from enough on mitigation. We are still on a pathway, as the Secretary General said, of climate uh, you know, uh, 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 highway to hell, I think was his quote, yes. Um, and I think, you know, in, in some ways you can say, okay, we held the line from Glasgow because the 1.5 degree goal is still the goal, but there was not progress. And I think what we saw actually was that there was uh, a group of uh, particularly uh, oil um, and uh, fossil fuel dependent countries that didn't want to go in that direction. There was over 80. There were over 80 countries that supported a, a phase out of fossil fuels. The European Union, Germany being in there, uh, Alliance of Small Island Nations, the, the Colombia, Chile, the progressive Latin American countries. But it was uh, pretty clear that those other oil-producing, gas-producing countries um, did not want to go in that direction. And Frankly, we had to consider at the end, which uh, Vice President Timmermans from the European Union talked about, whether we were going to say no to the entire agreement because there was not enough there for mitigation, but then we would have lost the loss and damage outcome, and we didn't want to do that. So we move forward and are doubling down 
Um, I, a week later, went to South America to be forging new alliances because we have no time, no time to lose. We have a question from our audience. Max Grönig of uh, Washington, D.C. asks, what is the strategy to ensure at COP28 and COP29 um, we meet expectations on ambition and loss and damage? Is there a recognition that a different approach is required? I mean, I think on, on loss and damage, if I have to think about what made it a success at this COP, I think there were a mixture of things, I think, and that's what we need for COP28 and COP29, which have very important issues on the agenda, whether it be that fossil fuel phase out or whether it be this global stock take, which is should be a science-based process to inform the next set of targets. I mean, we need to increase our current targets. Part of that was really um, having the most vulnerable countries have a driving role in these negotiations. The other was civil society. I mean, the pressure that was coming in from around the world from every group was was very important and very, and was felt, I think. And, and the fact that the impacts were hitting so hard that one just couldn't walk away, uh, look away anymore. I think those uh, pieces are key. And then really, uh, in the end, we had a, a strong coalition uh, in this COP, this past COP for an outcome on loss and damage. We need to do that for COP 28 and COP 29. I think the other piece I would say, which maybe was not as much seen, but for me, the COPs are always the multilateral negotiations, but they're also the agreements that get struck bilaterally or plurilaterally. And I think we need to do more of that. Maybe that's a bit of a different model what the questioner is, uh, is asking, where we you know, came to an agreement with South Africa for an investment plan for them to phase out coal more quickly. We came to an agreement with, with Indonesia for the same and phasing up renewable energy. Germany's working with Kenya to help it meet its 2030 100% renewables goal. I think those types of initiatives and UAE is is uh, clearly trying to position itself in that type of space despite its uh, gas production uh, capacity, then I think we need to really focus in there to be building the real economy. I mean, it's clear that renewables is is more affordable. It's clear that it's so much better than, than others. It's clear that a bio sustainable bioeconomy is better for people and we need to connect those local, national, and international uh, debates uh, better. Here in the United States, President Biden has invested an unprecedented amount of money in combating climate change through the Inflation Reduction Act. One area that's received a lot of attention, a big part of that act is a tax break for electric vehicles that are made in the United States. Um, what do you think that means for Europe's EV industry? Are you worried about kind of a, a, a buy American approach? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, um, we welcome the fact that there was legislation passed in the United States that the Biden administration, the US, uh, US President Biden succeeded in that. And it's clear that the US wants to be a global leader in energy transformation. And that's a very important signal for the world because I think um, the markets of the future are going to be green. And I think uh, we'll, that will move forward from this renewable energy, electric vehicles kind of a transformation. I think we're key, keen um, as Germany and the EU to work with President uh, Biden with, uh, and also to operationalize uh, that uh, promise to make that in Inflation Reduction Act also work for partners. I think we're in very many conversations also with other countries 
And uh, I think we want to make that a race to the top that's fair. And I think we're confident that we can do that in a, in a transatlantic kind of partnership. We have already something with uh, Germany and the US uh, and also the European Union works closely to set those standards. In fact, just yesterday, the G7 under Germany Germany's uh, leadership concluded the Climate Club, which is there to drive industrial sectors, energy intensive sectors uh, towards the 1.5 limit um, so that uh, we can uh, achieve those reductions in a way that we can all have, um, you know, share from those successes. We have another question from our audience, uh, Travis Brubaker from DCS. Will the IRA help or hinder transatlantic efforts to curb climate change and accelerate Germany's Energiewende? How does Germany view the idea of a potential buy European act? Well, I think, you know, as I said, it's um, a big priority for us. And I think we're we're working closely um, with the United States to come to an agreement. But at the same time, we have to continue our own efforts um, to strengthen the European green transition of our industries. Uh, and we are having uh, conversations in Germany and in the European Union how how we can do that best. Um, you know, I think we're we're seeing that when we act together, um, we are we are strong. Uh, we have also tremendous renewable resources across the European Union, um, and I think that's that's really the the focus of testing that. I I think we are sticking with our ambitious goals and driving those forward, um, but we also want to make sure that for our companies um, that it's fair and that there's the those conditions for that race to the future, which we um, we need to have in just just a couple of years here. So. Um, I think that's that's how we're we're thinking about it. Uh, that kind of a balance uh, moving forward. Um, and in Brussels, just this morning, I think in the early hours of today, um, European Parliament and European Council made a lot of progress on a European carbon border tax. Don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but that would basically help ensure that emissions that are from things that are produced outside of the European Union aren't um, unfairly imported into the EU uh, at a savings uh, compared to the, the more expensive things in the European Union that are more expensive because um, they're being manufactured in a more green manner. What do you think that means for Europe's climate policy? Are you optimistic that 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 will help Europe's climate ambitions? Well, I am optimistic, I think both for, for Europe, but also really globally. I mean, um, that mechanism is really there to also create incentives for other countries to green their supply chains. Um, we are in the middle of a climate crisis and we all need to be moving together on that. And so the CBAM, as it's noted, is really there to incentivize for other countries to put in place the types of policies that will decarbonize their supply chains um, so that we can be decarbonizing the economy to meet that 2050 zero carbon economy goal. Uh, and I think I think that is the purpose of it. I think um, what I have seen already, uh, even before the agreement, was that that's been taken seriously. It's almost as if Europe is now being taken as uh, that we mean this climate action seriously. It, it remains a top priority of the Union of Germany's leadership. So um, 
I think hope, we're hoping others will join in and uh, this is an extra mechanism. You know, the Paris Agreement doesn't have enforcement mechanisms in it. And I think this is an extra way of creating those incentives so that countries uh, move in the right direction. Um, and Germany uh, recently announced about 200 uh, million euros in subsidies to help its citizens and businesses cope with high energy prices. Um, that's a Germany-specific approach. Um, it has objected to some of the efforts to uh, put really ambitious low limits on uh, the prices of natural gas to, to um, uh, combat high energy prices around Europe. Some of Germany's neighbors have criticized it for having a what they say is a go-it-alone approach, kind of prioritizing Germans over others. Is that fair? And what, what do you say to, to those critics? Well, I think it's pretty clear that Germany um, is working very actively and engaged within the European Union to find solutions that work for everyone. And that is a current topic and that will come uh, today and in the coming days um, to see how we can do that. I think uh, the way that we approach the European Union, the, the role that we play there is, is fundamental, while at the same time being very close and, and having very large um, impacts that came from this Russian war uh, and phasing out Russian fossil fuels and therefore wanting to make sure that we can um, be taking care of our citizens, our small businesses that have seen a, a, a huge jump in energy prices in a way that I think um, we needed to ensure that, that we had stability here and that stability also brings stability for Europe. Uh, so it's very interdependent. And I think, you know, we are working hard, like I said, within Europe for those types of solutions. And I think a strong Germany is also a, a condition for a, a strong Europe. And we're working on both uh, in parallel. How much of your time is spent on those kinds of long-term efforts to help Germany reduce its ambitions, help Europe reduce its ambitions, and how much is spent on that short-term energy crunch? Uh, there simply isn't enough uh, energy right now uh, in Europe for all of its citizens, all of its needs. Um, some of that short-term energy is spent on uh, finding fossil fuels uh, to, 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 to fill the gaps. How do you find the the balance and 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 what what is the balance right now? Well, I think for the government as a whole, um, because we have a kind of an approach where climate change has been mainstreamed across this German government. So we have an economics and climate action ministry uh, along with the my, my leading of the the, the foreign policy, uh, climate foreign policy out of the federal foreign office. Um, and so I think obviously it is a top priority for our economics and climate um, ministry and, and I support in that and our chancellery, of course, as well, to make sure that we have an, an, a replacement. And I think that's the key thing to note, a replacement for that Russian gas and to do it in a way uh, across the government, really, that doesn't endanger our climate goals, our long term climate goals. We have a binding 2045 climate uh, greenhouse gas neutral target. And therefore, the ways that we're doing that, the ways that the economics and climate ministry are, are working on implementing that, you know, are those, whether they be floating LNG terminals or looking to make sure from partners uh, that we can fill that gap while we're scaling up 
renewable energy and energy efficiency. Germany uh, passed the, the largest legislative package uh, on energy, and one could even say almost on anything, uh, this March to scale up our renewables 80% by, by 2030 and, and energy efficiency and to accelerate the pace of implementation. I think my role there is to be bringing in the international perspective, to be working with allies, to also be looking at how we can fill uh, the gaps medium term also with uh, green hydrogen in a, in a socially safe and equitable and environmentally uh, sound way. Um, and the Economics and Climate Ministry is, is really uh, in the lead of our national uh, implementation and making sure we get that balance right, climate goals in place, coal phase out in place, but making sure that we have heat for our citizens for this winter and next. Well, as, as you said, there's already a lot happening in, in Germany right now um, in terms of efforts to reduce emissions. But what more um, could the government be doing to, to help Germans in, in the middle of this crisis uh, reduce their emissions and, and, and try to address their problems in a, in a kind of green manner? Well, I think there's I think um, the government can always be um, doing more in terms of uh, you know, advising uh, citizens, of course, it's their, their own decisions about um, how they can save energy. We're seeing actually a, a tremendous response to that from both companies and from citizens and how they're responding uh, and how their purchases uh, can make a difference on that. I think we're looking also, uh, there's lots there about how people can be uh, getting and installing um, uh, renewable uh, heat pumps uh, in their homes, uh, just a whole range of measures, how they can also be um, reducing their own uh, demand uh, across the board, also in transportation. So I think that's a big piece. And then we're just really monitoring the, obviously the, the economic situation and very much looking out um, as much as we can for, for people who have a lower income, where this is especially um, hitting hitting them hard and that that's something that they can be doing both for themselves but also in solidarity with Ukrainians. We have a lot of Ukrainian, especially women and children here in Germany. And so we feel um, their situation, not of course as directly as they do, but I, I think um, that's also a key thing maybe of that spirit to, to try and bring. That doesn't mean there isn't societal debate, but it's it's very close to home here. Um, and just one one last question here. You, you've mentioned a couple of times Germany's um, plan to achieve uh, net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. Is that an easy or or an ambitious goal? What does it look like for Germany right now? That's pretty ambitious. Um, you know, Germany, uh, we produce steel. Uh, we we have chemical companies. We have an energy intensive economy. Uh, we're a trade uh, nation. So what it looks like is a, a climate law that is binding within sectoral goals um, across the different sectors and then different ministries that are responsible for implementing those measures with an independent commission that tells us where we're doing well and where we need to do more work. Uh, and I think we definitely um, are doing well, but we also need to do more work in our transportation sector and our housing sector because it's really, it is an all of, God, all of society approach. I mean, we can 
as government be putting forward different laws, et cetera. But then, you know, we want to do this together with with our citizens, with local initiatives that can be having renewable energy, you know, wind turbines coming in in a way that is consistent with biodiversity and brings local benefits to those communities. And and uh, there's a there's a lot of societal debate. And I think that requires a lot of listening, a lot of of, of explaining in a way that isn't coming and telling people what to do, but trying to share where we are and what the dilemmas are, and also how they can be part of this solution. Uh, people here feel the climate crisis. They've, they see it happening here in Germany and in Europe with the heat waves, with the dried out Rhine um, this summer, and many of them don't know what to do. And so I think a lot of it is that kind of partnership across society uh, where our companies play a big role sticking with their targets and also wanting to lead the way, by the way, on the green transformation internationally, whether it be green steel or, or whatever that product may be, but also really working with our families and, and with citizens so that they can be part of that, but also that they feel safe um, and uh, that, that we can do our part in supporting them uh, in this transformation. It's, it's hard, but it's absolutely essential. And I hope that the lessons that we're learning by having to do this in an accelerated pace can be useful uh, as part of our climate foreign policy as well to accelerate learning around the world uh, because it can't take seven or eight years everywhere to build a wind turbine. It needs to happen more quickly, but it needs to be done, done uh, well. Really complex issues. Um, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there. That's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer Morgan. This has been really fascinating. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. The new Super Beats Heart Shoes Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, B-E-E-T-S dot com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.